Welcome to Endo Voices, brought to you by the American Association of Endodontists, the show where we are advancing the art and science of endodontics and promoting the highest standards of patient care with today's top experts in the field. Now, here's your host, Dr. Marcus D. Johnson. Hi there, it's Marcus, and before we get started, here's a quick important word from our sponsor. Are you ready to show your commitment to endodontics? Join the more than 8,000 professionals who help make the AAE the world's premier endodontic association. Being a member and a member of the AAE provides you with access to tools and education that can enhance your clinical skills and practice success while connecting you with thousands of like-minded colleagues. Join today. Visit aae.org backslash join. Welcome back to another episode of Endo Voices. I'm your host, uh, Dr. Marcus Johnson, and I am very excited today uh, to sit down with one of the most brilliant minds within our, our field of endodontics, uh, a prolific researcher, um, endodontist, educator, uh, list goes on and on, JOE editor. I am speaking none other than uh, the amazing Dr. Ken Hargraves. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Hargraves. How's, how's everything? You know, Marcus, it's a true pleasure to be able to sit down with you and, and spend some time with friends and, and talk about uh, things that we bring passion to in terms of saving the natural tooth. And, and I think anything we can do to make our patients more comfortable and more appreciative of the terrific work that we do is, is a fantastic time. I couldn't have phrased it better myself. And, you know, and the topic that we're dealing with is, I mean, one of the number one reasons why patients come. Uh, We're dealing with pain today. And I think that we're going to have some really nice conversation around just different ways to manage pain, but also that the misconception that dentists or endodontists actually put the patient in pain. We're going to dispel that myth because we're actually the ones who are pain specialists, experts in pain management, like you said, saving the natural uh, dentition. So, Really looking forward to our discussion, and um, you know you have pretty much honed in on that domain, and you are the leading expert within our field. So it's very exciting to have you here today, and uh, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't mention uh, the fact that you are a prolific researcher. I think it was a few years ago you got the golden award from the gold medal award from the ADA. Uh, so I just want to acknowledge that. So just really thank you for all your contributions, and uh, we'll take it from there. So I appreciate that, but in in, in full honesty, I, I'm, a, I'm a true believer in teams, and I am incredibly blessed, really, to have a, a team of colleagues uh, that I can work with back in San Antonio and really across the country, and same thing with the Joe and, and other endeavors. I, I don't do, the only thing I do by myself is swim. Um, outside of that, everything, <laughs> everything is part of a team, and, and, and I, I appreciate your your comments, but the reality is that the accolades are shared by a huge number of people that uh, really are exceptional. Indeed, spoken like a true leader. So, Dr. Hargraves, when we talk about pain, um, I mean, that just pretty much dictates our day uh, as endodontists. I can, you know, I'm fresh out of clinic now, and I had two emergencies just today. Obviously, they were in extreme pain, so they needed to be seen. And, and that's our day-to-day experience. And so, I think the important thing, and one of the things that you always touch on in your lectures is the importance of being able to differentiate adonogenic pain versus nonogenic pain. Uh, you know, we have a listenership that spans the whole spectrum from residents or maybe some interested in endo to seasoned, uh, you know, clinicians. So let's just phrase the conversation around differentiation between adonogenic pain and nonogenic pain. 
Yeah, so that, that's a really key point. I think it's even more challenging as an endodontist because many times in our treating emergency patients, we may have never met them before. So we have to reach out as one human being to another and immediately uh, develop that relationship, that empathy, where the patient is comfortable in your care and is trusting in your care. And, you know, typically in, in a dry lecture, we immediately jump to the differential. But the reality is if we don't start with a patient that is trusting in your hands, uh, we'll never be able to really get full treatment for our patients. So I think everything starts from there. And, and in endo in particular, it's challenging because many times, unlike a general dentist who may have treated a family for decades, we've not seen that patient before. And so we need to rapidly develop empathy with our patients. The concept of adonogenic and non-adonogenic pain is, is a difficult one to think about. And yet, at the bottom root, it, it, it's it's fairly straightforward. It's it's basically the fact that patients may perceive pain in one area of their body, but in fact, it starts in another area of the body. So a good example of this is a heart attack. So someone who has angina or due to myocardial infarction, uh, the origin of the pain is really clearly in the heart itself. And yet, depending on the study you report, 30 to 40% of patients may have pain radiating down their left arm. And we now recognize that there is clearly a sexual dimorphism with, with women reporting different areas of referred pain due to cardiac origin as compared to men. But the bottom line is that pain originates in one structure, but is perceived somewhere else. And that is due to um, what's called convergence, that neurons from different areas of the body converge back in the dorsal horn onto the same projection neuron. And it's also caused by central sensitization, this e exaggeration or winding up of the pain system. And we can take advantage of that as clinicians. So if you understand the concept of convergence, what that means is that if I stimulate the area that actually is causing the pain, that's going to increase the pain in the referred area. So let's move back to the face, get it out of the chest, move back to the face and give you a good example there. So if I have someone who has uh, pain when they bite down and uh, I'm asking the question whether the pain is originating from, say, the master muscle, which is the number one muscle that refers pain onto teeth, or whether the pain is originating from the tooth itself, I can start doing diagnostic tests. So in a normal patient, if I were to palpate the inferior belly of the man, of the master muscle, uh, there's no pain at all. Uh, but if I do it in a case where the pain is originating, say, from a trigger point in the masseter, when I palpate the masseter muscle, that'll actually increase the pain in both the masseter and increase the pain in the tooth itself. So if you understand convergence, what that means is that I can stimulate the distant site and the pain will increase in the suspected tooth. That's true for many examples. So if I have a maxillary posterior tooth that I'm suspecting that may have pain uh, secondary to say sinusitis, I can stimulate the sinuses and increase pain in the teeth. And the way we would do that is have the patient sit on the dental chair and basically put their head down around their knees. So when you put your head in a dependent position, that will increase the pressure in the sinuses uh, because all the mucus basically is going to come down into that inferior region in the head 
and cause pressure in the sinuses, and that would increase tooth pain. Or if someone has pain in the teeth secondary to a headache, just walking up, as you can probably imagine, walking up a flight of stairs because the increase in blood pressure increases pain in the headache, and that will also increase tooth pain. So the idea of adonogenic versus non-adonogenic pain is, is really just nothing more than the concept of referred pain. It's due to the way we're wired together as humans, that we have neurons from two different tissues that converge together back in the dorsal horn, and that will cause the problem of misdiagnosis. Um, and so that's, that is really what we want to do is to stimulate both structures and see if pain increases. That's a, a beautiful depiction of really what's going on with convergence. And I like how you uh, brought it all full circle with the, I guess, maxillary sort of uh, sinus people experiencing discomfort. And maybe now, since we've kind of had the discussion or we had recent literature kind of highlighting maxillary sinusitis of endodontic origin, you know, that brings new light to how we can actually differentiate and diagnose as really what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you think about that, those, those studies uh, and demonstrating that, you know, at least from a radiographic perspective, the resolution of the sinusitis appears to be secondary to successful non-surgical endodontic treatment. That really, again, brings forward this notion of, you know, oral systemic interactions. And, and yeah, the systemic part in this example is pretty close. It's the sinuses, but it, it's another example of this interaction where we don't just study teeth. And, and I think, you know, too often, particularly maybe when I was a referring doc myself, when I was a general practitioner, I would look at that, that little periapical film coming back and think that that was the whole story. And that's, that's just the opening chapter. That's, that's not the whole story at all. Indeed it is. And I love how you always, whenever I hear you speak, you always mention that what you do with your hands does matter. And and I think that really just kind of ties into how you're able to you, sort of stimulate, you said, the posterior belly of the, uh, the masseter muscle and things of this nature to really hone in as to what is the problem and where is it stemming from. And I think as endodontists, it's so important that we always reproduce the chief complaint of the patient at the time because therefore, when we can figure out what the problem is, we probably know how to treat. So thank you for that in-depth <laughs> discussion uh, regarding difference between adonogenic and nonogenic pain. So assuming that now we figured out that it is of adonogenic origin, what are some of the best techniques or more of the, I, I guess, more contemporary methods for actually managing that pain? And we can just discuss first from everything from uh, profound anesthetic, pulpal anesthesia, all the way to post-operative pain and how we kind of manage those situations? Yeah, that's a really, really great question. Um, let's, let's focus first on the anesthesia question. I'm old enough to know that when I was a dental student, there was only one sodium channel. And all I had to do to pass my <laughs> national boards was to remember, you know, the classic idea that local anesthetics cross into the cytoplasm and, and block the channel from the inside. Well, we know now that that's horribly simplified and that there are, depending on how you count them, nine or 10 major classes of sodium channels. Uh, they can be divided into two big classes uh, based on how they respond to a toxin called tetrodotoxin or TTX. Eight of the 10 are what are called TTX sensitive, and they're easily blocked by the toxin TTX. They're also easily blocked by every local anesthetic we have. 
It's the other two that are more interesting for us. The other two are called TTX-resistant sodium channels. For the aficionados out there, they're called NAV. So NA is sodium, V is voltage-gated. So that's when it's activated by our electric pulp tester. NAV 1.8 and 1.9. Mm. And Warren and Wells, about 10 years ago in the Joe, uh, reported in two separate papers that NAV 1.8 goes up about sixfold in dental pulp from patients with symptomatic irreversible pulpitis. And NAV 1.9, using different methods, shows about a threefold increase. And so the two sodium channels that are called TTX resistant, turns out they're also local anesthetic resistant, and they're primarily expressed on the pain neurons, the C fibers and some of the A delta fibers. So if you think back to your maybe your patients this afternoon, Marcus, where you give an inferior alveolar nerve block injection, and every bloody tooth in the quadrant is completely and pulply anesthetized, except the one you want to treat. Well, it turns out the one that you want to treat has the upregulation of these sodium channels that are not very impressed by local anesthetics. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we see in many, many clinical studies, a lot of them originating from the Ohio State University, that there is a increase in failure rates of IAN blocks in patients with symptomatic IP. And the most likely explanation for that, I believe, is due to an increase in sodium channel density in the pulp, particularly the TTX-resistant sodium channels. So pulpal inflammation causes a selective increase in those channels in pain neurons, and that simply means that our local anesthetics aren't going to work as well. Whereas the neighboring teeth are not inflamed, they have normal distribution of sodium channels, and they're fully anesthetized. So it, it, it basically very nicely explains you know, the clinical problem that you and I have where, you know, if you want to treat any of the other teeth in the quadrant, you're fine. But the one that's causing the pain, that one is still an angry cowboy. So that's always the hot tooth. <laughs> it is always the hot tooth. So fortunately, we now have some pretty good strategies in place um, to be able to gain anesthesia. And that's that I think is the next piece of that. So if we understand the biology my, my view is if I understand the biology, I can be a better clinician. So what does that mean? It means that we know that prostaglandins are increasing in flame pulp and that uh, they do lots of different things, but one of which is they actually, what we call phosphorylate, they, they put a phosphate group on these sodium channels and that makes them even more active like doubles the amount of sodium that flows through the channels. So uh, there have been studies now asking a really simple question. If I pre-treat my emergency patient with an NSAID, does it actually make the local anesthetics work better? So the notion is the patient takes the NSAID, it's absorbed, it blocks prostaglandin levels in the inflamed tooth. You now start to get dephosphorylation of the channel, and that makes it easier to get blocked by the local anesthetic. There have been 17 clinical trials in the dental literature asking that question to the point where we now have meta-analyses that have been done. And the answer is yes, that mm. if we use any of a variety of pretreatment analgesics, that actually enhances your ability to get your patients numb. So let's take that to your clinic. If this is a patient of record and you know they can take an NSAID, you can have them take them at home so that the drug is already absorbed and producing its effects by the time they come into the operatory. Or if it's a new patient and you still need to do the medical history evaluation to make sure that it's safe to use an NSAID, 
Then you can use the fast-acting NSAID. So you could do injectables. Uh, Toradol is still available injection. Uh, Volterin is available injection, at least in Europe. Uh, or you can use fast-acting oral NSAIDs. Uh, two are on the marketplace. One is Advil Liquid Gels, which has been on the marketplace now for over a decade. And the other is ibuprofen sodium salt, not the base form, which is found in normal Advil, but the salt form. And that shows a much faster absorption, actually even faster than liquid gels. So that's marketed as Advil thin film uh, technology, but the box says ibuprofen sodium. So you can use either of those in the operatory on your emergency patients before you even use the local anesthetic. So the scenario is the patient comes in, you review medical history, you verify it's a donogenic origin, you give them a fast-acting NSAID, say four or 600 milligrams of ibuprofen sodium, and then go see another patient while that drug is being absorbed. Come back a few minutes later, now you can give your block injection and be much more successful in the block injection because you've reduced tissue levels of prostaglandins. So step number one is recognizing the fact that inflamed pulp is fundamentally different than normal teeth uh, by, virtue, by lots of different things. But in this case, by an increase in TTX-resistant channels, that prostaglandins turbocharge these channels, which means that NSAIDs not only relieve pain, they actually make your local anesthetics work better. And again, we have 17 clinical trials that have demonstrated this. So this is this is pretty pretty well uh, down the evidence-based chain if you think about think about that point. Wow. The second thing to think about is to use an adjunctive. So now we've given the NSAID, we've done our block injection. So let's do an adjunct. So classically, we could do say an intraosseous injection with say. Oh, a Stabadent system or any of X-Tips, any of the other products that are on the marketplace. And the idea is that that works well for sure, uh, but it's a little bit slow, it's a little bit cumbersome. Uh, and so now studies have come out and, and asked whether articane be given by buccal infiltration. So think about how you would normally anesthetize a maxillary molar by buccal infiltration. It's the same idea, except it's in the mandible. Um, and Christine Segley's group out of Oregon have now done a meta-analysis comparing articane to lidocaine published in the Joe a few years ago. And sure enough, articane by buccal infiltration is, has an odds ratio of 3.6-fold better than lidocaine uh, by giving it as buccal infiltration to get mandibular anesthesia. So, you know, the first trick is to use an NSAID that's fast-acting. The second trick is do your conventional block. The third trick is to now use a supplemental, either intraosseous or what we call ABI, articane by buccal infiltration, which frankly is faster and less expensive. Um, so it's it's one that I, I would certainly favor. Wow, uh, Dr. Hargis, I mean, this is just really a treat for me and I don't mean to cut you off, but I mean, I'm learning so much just being able to sit down and have this amazing experience and just kind of listen to you speak. Um, but I, I did just want to stop you for a minute and go back to, the research, I guess, that you mentioned from Ohio State, and we we talk about a lot of that research on local anesthetics from you know the reader and new scene in that group out there, and we talk about the time that it takes for a patient to become fully anesthetized with pulpal anesthetic, and you're talking about the upregulation of the TTRX resistance and the prostaglandins, all the uh, inflammatory mediators. Do we feel that the insets the 
uh, I guess, pre-treatment NSAIDs will have an effect on the duration in terms of the amount of time that it takes a patient to become fully anesthetized? Because if, if I remember correctly, I think it's maybe 15 to 18 minutes or based on some of those studies. Yeah, that's those are really important questions to ask. So, so we know that it improves the efficacy of local anesthesia. We've not really had enough studies that are like called stopwatch studies, where you basically are having the patient use a stopwatch to to evaluate onset of analgesia. That's been done after surgical pain. So, stopwatch studies have been done quite a bit, say after extraction of impacted third molars, and those are important for showing that these new formulations, ibuprofen, sodium, and the liquid gels, uh, actually have a much faster onset of action. Uh, so com compared to, and this is Robin Moore's work, uh, compared to standard tablets of ibuprofen, where the peak blood level is about 110 minutes after your patient swallowed the pill, wow. the peak blood level for liquid gels is about 40 minutes, and the peak blood level for ibuprofen sodium is about 20 to 30 minutes. Um, so, you know, it's, it's going to give us faster onsets, but, but your question is really important. Now, I'm not aware of a stopwatch type of study in terms of effectiveness and what, what the time duration is. I think that's so key. The sodium, what's salt? What is it? The liquid gel sodium? Yeah. So there's two forms of I never of knew ibuprofen. about that. That is yeah, that's so, really uh, <laughs> great information to know. Sure. So, so the, the line is, you know, if you... If you, uh, the makers of Advil um, uh -huh. kind of want you to think about them like M&Ms. And so <laughs> okay. when you put an Advil tablet on your tongue, the first sensation is almost that of sweetness. And, and that coating slows down absorption. So the, the people are really brilliant. They've actually developed two different formulations that solve that problem. One is in a, the ibuprofen is in a gelatin capsule. So it's very fastly dissolved in the GI tract. And that's Advil liquid gel. And then the more recent one is the sodium salt. Mm. And that's Advil, what's called thin film. Um, but it's really, when you look at the box, it's ibuprofen sodium. That's that's the key difference there. So two different products, if you will, of, of Advil that are both are available over the counter. Um, and they both have faster onset as compared to standard NSAIDs. So to keep that in your operatory for an emergency patient, to enhance your ability to get anesthesia, in my mind, makes sense. Uh, the fast, even faster than that, would be injectable, but but that's not really as available today as it was uh, in in the past. Okay, man, Dr. Hargreaves, this is amazing. And, and while we're on that subject, maybe we can just kind of bring into the conversation. Uh, I think Advil Dual Action uh, has been recently brought onto the market. I don't know how, like how long it's been in development, but I did happen to see it not too long ago in the stores. And I know you mentioned that uh, at the Greater New York Dental Meeting when you spoke for uh, the New York State Association of Benadonis, which phenomenal lecture, by the way. Uh, but let's kind of discuss that because I have actually had some questions from patients regarding its efficacy in managing uh, post-op pain. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, so the studies in humans that have tested whether ibuprofen and sedimenophen produce enhanced analgesia goes all the way back to Stephen Cooper's work in 1986. Oh, cool. So we've, we've been sitting on this for a long time. <laughs> Definitely. And, and it, frankly, uh, you know, we've been, our, our field, I think, has been at the forefront of talking about combining two separate pills of ibuprofen and sedimenophen and talked about that for years. And, and, as we get into hopefully a conversation about opioids as well, 
what I think is important here is not only do we get better analgesia without an increase in side effects, but in a sense, it's opioid replacing that you really are being able to reduce the risk for patients to succumb to substance use disorder. And again, I'm happy to talk about that too. In San Antonio, I, I first saw the uh, dual action in my CVS uh, drugstore last summer. So <laughs> you guys I, got CVS was, out there. Okay. Yeah, That's I was good. so excited. We have it here too in New York. <laughs> I took a picture with my phone, you know? And just, yeah, you had to, um, right? <laughs> yeah, I had to for sure. Uh, so, and it was uh, March of 2020 that the FDA had actually given final approval. So from from March to July, they, you know, finished the packaging and, and got it out in the stores. And then it, it launched sometime around July or August, depending on where you live. It's a, a good combination. Um, mm-hmm. It's probably a little low on ibuprofen's dose. And, you know, from my perspective, uh, for mild to moderate pain, I think there's a lot of studies out now that would argue that 400 milligrams of ibuprofen and say 325 of uh, cetaminophen on a Q6H basis is going to give you a very nice uh, combined effect. And the studies that have been published, which are as large as six or 700 patients, uh, are reporting no difference in adverse effects to e- compared to either drug alone. Mm. Um, for severe pain, we probably would recommend uh, higher doses for both. So maybe ibuprofen 600 milligrams or, and acetaminophen 500 milligrams. Now, let me just take one step on this uh, and talk about some recent work that makes us want to be thoughtful about this combination. And, and that is that you all remember the COX-1, COX-2 story that came out 15, 20, well, more than that, years ago now. Uh, and the recognition that COX-2 inhibitors uh, were associated with prothrombic events. So they were associated with the increased risk of a myocardial infarction or a stroke. Uh, we now know that ibuprofen at higher dosages is has a high enough blood concentration that not only does it block COX-1, it also blocks COX-2. And in large studies... Uh, this is like 400,000 patient studies, retrospectives. Patients that take ibuprofen are actually at a detectably higher risk for myocardial infarctions um, as compared to patients not taking NSAIDs. There's a question still about whether naproxen has a lower risk than that or not. It's it's been Mm -hmm. seen in some studies, but not all. Importantly, it looks like the very earliest time point where this comes on is about seven days of continuous use. So in my seven own practice, days, you said, yeah, seven days, seven one week. days. Wow. And so, yeah, there's a risk there. It's, it's not a high risk, but there is a risk. And if you get enough patients on the study, it is statistically significant. Wow. But I think going back full circle, if you're using higher doses of ibuprofen acetaminophen, what you really want to do is have your patients only take that for two to three days and then PRN as needed thereafter. So take it by the clock. Uh, for the first two or three days, giving you very steady blood levels, very predictable levels of pain. And we know that a large amount of the post-endodontic pain is really over by two to three days. And then have your patients only take that as needed. And I think what that does is it gives you the higher dosages that gives you very effective analgesia when the patients need it, but it's a short enough period of time that it's way under the seven-day, which is the earliest time point, 
that's been seen in studies with an MI risk. So I, I think, you know, we want to be thoughtful about this. We are, as you started in the beginning, Mark, is saying we're pain experts. We also need to be pharmacology experts too. If if we're using NSAIDs and the acetaminophen and opioids a lot and local anesthetics a lot for pain control, we need to know these drug classes inside and out. So this recognition that circulating levels of ibuprofen are sufficient to block COX-2 and clinically is associated with, with a small but a significant risk of MI is something that we need to be thoughtful about. And and now the, we're I, at least I am recommending having patients take your combinations by the clock, but only for a few days, and and then thereafter if needed. Amazing information. I mean, this is fascinating. And you've always been uh, just a wonderful ambassador, and, and actually just uh, someone who uh, encourages you know proper uh, prescription, I guess stewardship, if you will. And we're actually just going to take a quick break uh, here from our sponsors. And when we get back into the conversation, Dr. Hargraves, we'll, we'll touch right back on those, uh, those points that you just highlighted. At EPP, we are your partners in success. By affiliating with premier endodontic practices, endodontic practice partners aims to elevate the standard of care and believes in letting our practitioners focus on their core clinical responsibilities. Our mission is clear, to provide business expertise and resources that empower our partner practices and amplify growth opportunities. How do we achieve this? By seamlessly integrating. We're not just colleagues, but a community working towards a common goal. The value of being part of a larger entity benefits all. We are growing in selective states to maximize the opportunities and impact for our partners. With 100 doctors and 65 practices, collective success drives individual achievements. Together, we lead the way. Visit endodonicpracticepartners.com to learn more. And meet us in person at AAE24 in L.A. Okay, thank you so much. We are back uh, with Dr. Hargraves, who has just really invited us into an amazing discussion. We've touched on pain management, pharmacology, and understanding how uh, it, it all translates back to us being able to make our patients most comfortable first so that we can have successful treatment and, and they can have uh, very positive experiences. So, Dr. Hargraves, before the break, you were kind of highlighting, uh, which was very interesting and, and new to me, the, I guess, increased myocardial risk that's associated with, I guess, insets or ibuprofen more, more specifically. Before we kind of take that a little bit further and bring in discussion about opioids and, and what's the proper prescription of combination of insets and acetaminophen, if I have, uh, I, I tell my patients, usually 600 milligrams of ibuprofen post-operatively, and if need be, up to 1,000 milligrams of acetaminophen. Do you think that's over-prescribing if, if, if we say that maybe 400 is the minimum therapeutic dose? Is that a good practice, you think? So, you know, if, if you think about Advil dual action, it's even below that. And, and gotcha. yet it's been approved by the FDA for analgesia. The, the clinical studies have gone down as low as, I believe, 100 milligrams of ibuprofen combined with 250 milligrams of acetaminophen and still showed improvement compared to placebo. So there's a whole dose range here. Um, as we give more and more dose of any drug, we have you know the potential for increased adverse effects. So it, it's a it's a balance. You have um, on one hand the desire as a clinician to really get effective pain control for our patients, and on the other hand we really want to minimize the potential for adverse effects. So I think for you know mild to moderate pain, certainly at mild pain, the Advil dual action makes sense. One or two tablets. 
for perhaps moderate pain, 400 milligrams of ibuprofen with 325 of acetaminophen, in my mind, makes sense. And then for severe pain, uh, the 600 milligrams of ibuprofen with 500 milligrams of acetaminophen, um, all given in, on a six-hour basis for two to three days after the procedure. Um, I think I think you can really pull a lot of those recommendations based on on studies that have been conducted and published. But there is no magic ratio. So this this enhancement between ibuprofen and acetaminophen occurs over a broad range of doses. So it, the nice thing as a clinician is you almost can't go wrong. Um, mm-hmm. And if your patient still has some discomfort, as in the scenario you pointed out, Marcus, then you know you can you can simply ha- have them increase one or the other or both. But I think what we want to do is to be thoughtful about potential adverse effects. So we talked about one of the uh, more recently uh, noted adverse effects of of NSAIDs, and that's blocking COX two and having a small but but statistically significant increased risk, at least when you do studies of hundreds of thousands of patients for MI. Uh, But we also need to be aware of the fact that acetaminophen has its own issues um, here, much more in the liver, where the FDA has reported that uh, 48% of acute liver failures in the United States is actually associated with excessive doses of acetaminophen. And one of the problems here is acetaminophen is in so many different formulations that your patients could be taking, you know, extra strength Tylenol and maybe a cough cold remedy and all of a sudden be pretty close to a, a maximal dose of acetaminophen before you even see them. Um, and so the FDA has retained four grams a day of acetaminophen as the maximal safe dose. But you should note that Johnson & Johnson has actually recommended three grams per day as a maximal dose. And if you think about it, what I was recommending for moderate pain was 325 milligrams four times a day, which is 1.3 grams a day. So, you know, the idea of, of using three a regular strength tablet of acetaminophen at 325 milligrams on a Q6H basis is that we do get the benefit of enhancing the NSAID analgesia but you're doing it with a lower dose of acetaminophen. So it's 1.3 grams is you know less than half of the uh, J&J recommendation. It's only a third of the maximal FDA recommendation. So what we're trying to do is to balance out the desire for outstanding pain control for our patients, really with a thoughtful idea of having minimal side effects. I really like the idea of, um, I guess we could just sum it up as like the flexible prescribing. And like how you said, we can always kind of move along that spectrum to, uh, to help our patients as indicated. So you beautifully framed the discussion around the combination drugs of the insets and the acetaminophen. So when are we going to actually tie in uh, opioids and, and why were opioids so largely overprescribed? And, you know, I know you're you'll probably bring in some discussion about the you know opioid uh, crisis that we hopefully have started to see a, a downturn in. Um, but. Patients always ask me, can I have some codeine as well? Can I have some Percocet? And I try to be very strict and adhere to what we just discussed and highlighted. You'll actually probably have more relief when using this combination of the NSAID and the acetaminophen. But I think at this point, it's just become their psyche is, is already, they're already expecting that they're going to get better relief from narcotics than what we actually find in the literature, which supports uh, what you just highlighted. 
Yeah, and you know, it's an outstanding point. And and I can't blame the patients because most clinicians were taught that too. Um, <laughs> you know, we we always thought, I mean, I come I took my training in late 70s, early 80s, and and uh, and it was from Georgetown where they had an outstanding group of pain scientists, Bill Beaver, Steve Cooper, Paul Desjardins. Um, we're all from that area. So we really had great exposure to the, some of the leaders in the field. And, you know, in the beginning, the opioids were really thought to be the big dog, that, that we really had outstanding analgesia for these patients. And it was only when a sufficient number of randomized control trials came out that we realized, in fact, they're really just adjuncts. And so uh, if you Google Oxford League, this is Oxford as an Oxford University, and League of Analgesic Equivalency. It's a giant meta-analysis table available on the web of 61 different analgesics, more than 41,000 patients on analgesics more, compared to more than 10,000 patients on placebo. And they, they plot the data as percent of pain cut in half. So to me, that's a really clinically meaningful outcome. If I know I can give my patients this pill and I have a good probability of the pain being cut in half, that's, that's a great outcome for my patients. And what that data shows you when you compare it is that morphine sulfate, so 10 milligrams, the gold standard opiate, the gold standard dose, is about as good as two tablets, three tablets of Advil. That's so wild. So ibuprofen, 400 to 600 milligrams for inflammatory pain is about the same as 10 milligrams of morphine. And it's data like that that have really you know, informed us that what we have been taught is was probably incorrect. Um, it was really based on a historical perception of opioids being incredibly uh, strong as analgesics. And, and I'm not knocking them. There are many clinical situations, MIs, terminal cancer pain, some forms of neuropathic pain, where opioids are going to be very beneficial for the patients, but not for inflammatory pain. So for us as dentists, as, as endodontists, you know, the vast majority of pain conditions you and I treat are inflammatory pain. And under those conditions, that's where prostaglandins play a major role in terms of producing the pain. And so that's why NSAIDs work so extraordinarily well for inflammatory pain conditions. They're not going to be nearly as effective for neuropathic pain or terminal cancer pain or the like. That's not a knock on the drug. It just tells you as a clinician, prostaglandins are not really involved in all pain conditions. But fortunately, they are involved in our pain conditions. So that gives us access to a great class of drugs that, that effectively treats pain. It's very easy to see why you received that gold medal award back in 2018. I mean, this is just a plethora of information and it's uh, really just nice to take it all in and have this, this candid conversation. So I want to transition a little bit to antibiotics and um, safe prescribing of antibiotics? And when do they come into the clinical scenario when a patient is in pain? Uh, they don't. So um, here I would really rely on, on work that in our field has really been led by Ashraf Fuad uh, and, and more broadly by, by the Cochrane uh, Collaborative, which has done a number of meta-analyses looking at the effectiveness of antibiotics uh, for treatment of, of dental pain and dental pain emergencies. And to, to summarize the work, the historical studies that were open-labeled 
uniformly showed that antibiotics work. Even erythromycin works quite well, and you and I know that erythromycin <laughs> doesn't really get endodontic pathogens at it's, all, but exactly. it makes a great yeah. active placebo. The patient has so much GI problems, they know they got something. <laughs> uh, so you get an enhanced reaction that way. On the other hand, in the double-blind placebo-controlled randomized trials where neither the patient nor the clinician knew who was getting the active drug and who was getting the placebo, with one exception, uh, every single trial has failed to show a benefit of antibiotics for relief of, of endodontic pain. And that is, that's perfectly fine. It's, it, that's, that's the results that we see in, in clinical research. A lot of times, you know, what happens is, is after we've done the treatment, so after you've done endo treatment, or let's say it's tooth as a hopeless prognosis, after you extract the tooth, what you've done with your hands is to reduce tissue inflammation. And that alone reduces pain. But we give Great all the credit. Point. We give all the credit to the antibiotics and not to our hands. And so when you do it in a double-blind basis, the antibiotics fail to separate out from placebo. So what I what I tell my own residents is that you know this doesn't stop you from using the antibiotics. We're going to use that to minimize the systemic spread of an infection. However, what it does say is that whenever you use an antibiotic, remember to prescribe an analgesic. Don't depend on the antibiotic to relieve pain. We just don't have the evidence for that. I think that is uh, just such a valid point, and it makes so much sense. And, you know, I, I teach uh, residents in the hospital a few times a month, and we're really trying to just be more uh, actively involved in being active stewards when it comes to antibiotic prescription and really highlight that unless there are it's less there's systemic involvement, fever, malaise, you know, trismus, things of this nature, rapidly spreading cellulitis. There really is no need to prescribe antibiotics to manage pain. And, and you summed that up so well. You really just, uh, you know, brought that home for us. So thank you for that. Yeah, I think the whole question of antimicrobial resistance is, is a major uh, issue and is, is one that, you know, certainly arose originally out of medicine, understanding the MRSA problems and now vancomycin fluoroquinolone resistance, but but certainly is seen in dentistry. And, and one classic paper to, that's worthy of, of anyone looking at is the paper by Kurayama's group out of Japan looking at the development of penicillinase-resisting organisms in endonogenic abscesses. So you can imagine, here's a little graph on the y-axis from 0 to 100% is the percent of abscesses that have beta-lactamase organisms. On the x-axis is just days on penicillin. And you start out at day one and zero, and basically none of the abscesses have penicillinase. By day three, it's 50-50. And by day eight, it's 100%. So really, when you and I are prescribing, say, a penicillin for a patient, it's not the wonder drug that's, that's killing all the microorganisms. What you're really doing is just creating an environment where those organisms that can survive in that environment will now flourish. So you create, in penicillin, it's a harsh environment. It kills rapidly growing microorganisms, except those who make beta-lactamases. So now they can thrive and they can dominate. And so over time, as little as a week, uh, what you're selecting for is actually infections are more difficult to treat. They now have more and more penicillinase-producing organisms. Strong point. When we're talking about, I guess, uh, definitive uh, dental treatment, if we can, so to speak, and like you mentioned, what you do with your hands. I think that we, we really have to underscore that as being so important and knowing when to maybe I and D, 
uh, as opposed to prescribing antibiotics, also bringing into the conversation, draining the abscess through the tooth, things of this nature. So we're really hitting on some poignant points this evening, and I can't thank you enough, Dr. Hargreaves, for really just bringing this all home for us. But some of the things that often plague endodontists is that enigma of just the persistent pain. You know, this patient, you've done everything you can. You thought maybe there was missed canal, the MB2. You found that now. You use the scan. You can't see anything significant. How are we actually managing persistent postoperative discomfort? How, what's the strategy and the approach for that? Yeah, so so this is a, a really important point that you're bringing up. And if you think of Alan Laws and, and Don Nixdorf's recent papers, on persistent post-endo pain uh, that they've generated from, you know, the large nationwide practice-based research network. What what they're reporting is persistent pain is actually probably much more prevalent than we thought. So we're, we're probably, in my own practice, you know, like most endodontists, I think it's a pretty rare occurrence. Uh, but, you know, they're reporting numbers somewhere in the neighborhood of, of two to six percent, depending on whether you're combining adonogenic or non-adonogenic post-procedural pain. We really, at this point, don't have, I think, a clear understanding of what's causing it. There are, broadly speaking, two possibilities. One is that we have incompletely uh, removed the infection in the periphery. So you you alluded to, you know, a missing MB2, and, and that certainly is a great example of that where you know, we still continue to have delivery of bacteria or antigens in the periapical tissues that now continue to excite pain neurons. In fact, we know the pain neurons actually ha- express the TOL4 receptor. So LPS can actually, if you will, bacteria can directly talk to nerves. Uh, so LPS is detected by the pain neurons and actually very happily sends that message back to the brain. So if we, in the periphery, uh, it's possible to have a continual peripheral generator that may continue to activate peripheral neurons. If that's true, I would expect local anesthetics to be effective at your patient in terms of relieving their persistent pain. Because if we can give a block injection, we should be able to silence that peripheral generator. And and if that uh, strategy works for your patients, then you need to continue to explore what's happening in the periphery. So. Is it another tooth besides just that one tooth? Is it incompletely treated root canal systems? Is it materials that are producing a chronic inflammatory process? So we know historically the old paste materials were certainly a great example of materials producing persistent effects. So the local anesthetic, I think, is an important way of thinking about initially working through with your patients with that persistent post-endo pain, whether you have a peripheral generator or not. If the local anesthetics are ineffective, so I give, say, a a block injection and I can verify anesthesia on adjacent teeth, um, then I need to really start considering that it could be a central effect. And in this case, what we would think of is, is persistent central sensitization. This has been known for a long time. So phantom limb pain in diabetics um, has both a peripheral component, but also has a major spinal component in the dorsal horn. So you get such a massive barrage of pain neurons that essentially this resets into a pain state uh, centrally. And so, you know, phantom limb pain is one example of that, but the reality is now we've seen in the medical pain literature that many, many 
surgical procedures, hysterectomies, thoracotomies, uh, other forms of amputation are all associated with persistent pain. And here's thought to be due to nerve damage, that surgery itself may damage peripheral nerves, causing this, this barrage to occur, but it can also occur centrally. So what I would consider for testing whether my patients have central sensitization would either be the endodontist or a neurologist, if, if they're more comfortable with referral, to consider a course of centrally acting medications that reduce central sensitization. So here, Lyrica or Neurontin uh, would be considered. These are GABAoids that inhibit the release of glutamate centrally from the very first synapse. Uh, Lyrica actually has a pain indication, so it's it's very probably more favored for conventional use than Neurontin is. That would be an off-label use for Neurontin. The other uh, drug class to consider would be, say, Cymbalta, uh, which actually enhances catecholamine levels in the dorsal horn. So if, if I've used a local anesthetic and it relieves the patient's pain, I'll continue to focus in the periphery to try to find out what the cause is. If I use the local anesthetic and it has no effect on the patient's pain and I verify the anesthetic worked, then I need to consider central effects. And so here I would use drugs that, that would disrupt central sensitization. In this case, either the GABAoids, Lyrica probably being favored, or drugs such as Cymbalta and evaluate whether that had a relief for patient's level of pain. Amazing. Quite impressive. Uh, it's, it's no wonder why you have uh, continually led uh, the Journal of Endodontics to uh, higher standards each and every year as our editor. And, uh, you know, I, I had Rob Rhoda on and Anita Amina Sherry, and we were just discussing uh, the importance of knowing how to read and, and kind of just uh, ascertain what's important out of an article and how you read that. And they both just sang your praises and and I have to join in on that sentiment. But yeah, I know you being as humble as you always are, uh, you would say you have a, a very nice team surrounding you. Uh, and you In, definitely including do. Including Rob and Rita, yes. <laughs> including <laughs> both, yes. But I, I have to tell you, um, Dr. Hargraves, I really look forward to being able to sit down and have this conversation with you in person. Uh, you know, it has been a pleasure just to uh, kind of come to know you more on a more in a more personal space. And you do so much for our field. And uh, I just want to share for our listeners just how much of a, just a regular guy you are, a humanitarian. I had just finished up residency in 2011 and it was 2012. And uh, there was the Arab Endodontic Society. Uh, they were having a conference in Dubai. And obviously I wanted to go and, it, you know, the speaker list was phenomenal as you, you know, Dr. Sedgley, uh, Leif Bachlin. Uh, I think I mentioned Cliff Ruddle, uh, but it was, it was great. So it made sense. Try out a new, uh, you know, country and then also, you know, get some good, uh, good endo information. And I engaged you in conversation for a short bit. And I also had my uncle with me at the time. And you didn't really know me from anyone, but you guys went to dinner that evening and you guys were obviously the guest of honor. And you motioned to me to go ahead and tag along. And I cannot tell you that to this day, my uncle always says that was his favorite trip. He said it was amazing just to be in the company of just such brilliant minds but everyone was very humble and treated us just like we were on the same level. And I was just fresh out of residency. So I'll always remember that as my first interaction with you. And uh, since then, I've always said, if there's anyone I wanted to aspire to become like, it was definitely you. So it's really been a, uh, a pleasure and a privilege to speak with you and have you on the podcast. 
Well, I, Marcus, I appreciate that so much. I also appreciate we're not showing videos. So you can't see the shade <laughs> of red on my face right now. Um, but I, I will say that there's many characteristics about being an endodontist that I'm proud of. But one is our culture is is one really of of inclusion that you know we are uh, folks that enjoy each other's company that enjoy being together you know i think having now lost our second annual meeting and doing it uh, virtually i i think the intellectual content will shine through uh, but what i will terribly miss is the human content uh to be able to see people and friends that i haven't seen for a while and i'm sure the same is for you as well that that it's it's that aspect of of our specialty that is so incredibly uplifting and we don't see that in uh, providers of other specialties as much as as we do with with endodontists and i think it's just part of the culture with with sam and ib and and many many others that have really made this a open door where we can come in and enjoy each other's company and i thank you for your leadership in developing and, and this podcast, I think it's going to have a phenomenal, it has a phenomenal impact and will continue to do so. And I'm, I'm thrilled to have had a chance to spend some time with you this evening. So thank you for that. Thank you so very much. And you're always a friend of the podcast. And uh, Dr. Hargraves will go ahead and bid you adieu for this evening. Uh, continue to stay safe and leading us into the future of endodontics. So be blessed. And we'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much, Marcus. And to you as well. Appreciate that. Hey, before you go, I'd like to give a special thanks to our sponsor. As endodontists, we're better together. The work we do changes lives, but it can also be overwhelming. That's why Specialty One Partners exist. We help your practice run smoothly so you can spend more time providing premium care to your patients. Receive all the advantages of joining a larger group of dental professionals while preserving your individual brand, culture, and team. Your specialty is our specialty. Ensuring your ability to focus on your patients and your future is what we do best. Join the original and fastest growing partnership organization founded and led by endodontists by visiting SpecialtyOnePartners.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Endo Voices. Don't forget to subscribe so you can catch all of our upcoming episodes covering the hottest topics in endodontics. As always, we welcome your questions, comments, and ideas for future show topics and guests. Email us at endovoices at aae.org and visit aae.org for more information on the American Association of Endodontists.